0: Once again, good morning. Good morning. Let's be turning our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. That'll be our jumping off place uh, this morning. Do you remember the song? You know the song, page number 605 in your song book, Bring Christ Your Broken Life. That's kind of, kind of, it's going to be our emphasis uh, this morning. Bring Christ, the the two authors there of the song, uh, last name Chisholm and And uh, Sanderson, uh, they wrote this song way back in 1935, 1935. Uh, The one named Sanderson wrote an autobiography and he talked about this song. And he said they were writing a song, creating a song to show that Jesus is the answer for every situation of life. And they began properly with the first verse. Which says, Bring Christ your broken life, so marred by sin, he will create anew and make whole again. Your empty, wasted years, he will restore, and your iniquities remember no more. I want us to keep that in mind, if you don't mind. Keep that in mind as we examine Paul here in 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 to 17. Paul is uttering really a prayer here, and he's remembering Jesus in his prayer. We can remember along with Paul, and it can explain to us the various reasons why we should bring Christ our broken life. Life is broken because of sin, so marred by sin. Life is given to us by God. And God expects us to manage life according to His will. No one has the answer. Where do you take a broken life? No man has the answer. The only way, the only place to take our life is to Christ. And so notice Paul here in 1 Timothy 1 beginning in verse 12. And notice that he's going to remember some things about Christ. Let's remember them as well. And let's especially determine we're going to continue to bring our lives uh, to Christ. First of all, notice in verse 12 that Paul remembers this. He remembers that Christ wants to be involved in our lives. He wants to be involved in our lives. Notice he uses the personal pronoun me three times. As he prays to the Lord, he says, Lord, strengthen me first. And he says, Lord, the Lord counted me faithful second. And the Lord appointed me or he put me into the ministry. Okay. So Paul remembers that Christ wanted to be involved, wants to be involved in his life. Let's remember that too. Let's think about these three things real fast. The Lord strengthened Paul. This means to receive power from the inside, inside out. He empowered Paul to become the Christian that he, he became. He strengthened him. Strengthened him. In a similar uh, idea, Paul says in, in 2 Timothy 4, uh, 16 and 17, that when all men forsook him... The Lord strengthened him and stood by him. I was hearing the other day that in Philadelphia, as different officials dealt with youth from the ages of 11 to 17 who had committed crimes, one of the programs was that they have the youth to take violin lessons for 30 days. If they take those violin lessons for 30 days, then the record is clean, they go back to their lives. I was thinking. You know it really begins in the heart. Doesn't it? What, what those youth need. What those families need. What their mom and dads need. They need this strength from within. Paul says in Philippians 4 and 13. I can do all things through Christ. Who strengthens me. Who strengthens me. So Christ has strengthened Paul. And he can do the same thing for us. God works on us. Through his own reality and through his word. And then it says, Paul says in verse 12 here that the Lord counted me. In other words, the Lord judged, judged me to be faithful. He counted me faithful. This is kind of a, a word uh, in relation to managers. Okay? God is the manager and, and God looked over the masses of humanity. And he said right here, Saul of Tarsus, right here. He's the man of the hour. He suits the needs of the hour. He's he's, he's best suited to take and take on the work of the gospel. He counted me. He judged me to be faithful. And then it says, he appointed me or he placed me. He put me in the ministry. But for us, let's first of all remember that Christ wants to be involved in our lives. Here's a verse you'll want to mark in your Bible. Turn over to John 14, 23 and listen to Jesus as he talks about this idea. John 14 and verse uh, 23. John 14, 23. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my words and my father will love you. And we will come unto you and we will make our home with you. Now, does that not tell you that Christ wants to be involved in our lives? He wants, to be, he wants to be in us. He wants to be with us. He wants to make His dwelling right there in our hearts and lives. Do we think of Jesus this way? Are we ready to think of Jesus this way? Let me ask us three questions before we move on. Going back to 1 Timothy 1 and verse 12, notice... There might be three questions that come out of that verse. First of all, am I thankful? Paul begins that verse by saying he was thankful to God that he had put him into the ministry. Am I thankful? Notice specifically there, Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't just run over those. Christ is the chosen one. Christ is the Savior. The, The word Jesus means Savior. The word Christ means chosen one. He is Christ Jesus, our Lord. He is is the one with all authority. He tells us what to do and what not to do. He is the Lord. He is the Master. If you jump down to verse 17, 1 Timothy 1, notice this. Paul, again, in relation to Jesus, says, To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Not just honor. Honor honor won't do it's got to be honor and glory and it can't just be you can't just be one time or one occasion or two or three occasions jesus deserves the honor and glory forever and ever first question is if i if i'm ready for jesus to be involved in my life then i want to be thankful to him do i really realize who i'm dealing with okay does it does it really dawn on me that this is the king immortal who to whom belongs honor and glory forever and ever? So first, am I thankful? Second question is, am I faithful? Paul said he was. The Lord counted him faithful or trustworthy. Trust, trustworthy. This means that that you know Luke eight uh, fifteen says that the word is received by those of a good and honest heart. Saul of Tarsus, even though he was ignorant for a while. Still, he was of the nature of a good and honest heart. Am I trustworthy? Am I trustworthy? And then a third question is, if I want Jesus to be at home in my life, the third question is, am I humble? Because the Lord said, or Paul said, the Lord put him into the ministry, or he, he appointed me to this service. It's a service. It always will be. There's no, there's no place... In Christianity, there's no place in the ways of Christ for self-promotion whatsoever. It's a service that we render to the Lord because He's the Lord and Master. It's a service. No man has the answer. No group of men has the answer. There are no spiritual gurus. There are no church gurus. There's no Bible gurus. If we don't have the answer, it only means because we're not looking at Jesus far enough. We're not looking at Jesus long enough. We're not studying His Word deep enough. Notice this verse, and then we'll move on to our second idea. Notice this verse, Colossians 2, verse 3, and don't forget it here. Don't forget it, Colossians 2, verse 3. In Jesus Christ is hidden all the treasures of both knowledge and wisdom. Colossians 2, verse 3. So am I humble? Am I humble? And a great indicator of whether or not I'm I'm humble is am I trying to go to myself? Am I I looking to other people? Am I looking to other Christians? Am I looking to other churches for answers when, when the answers, all the answers are found in our Lord Jesus. Bring Christ your broken life. Why? Because he wants to be involved. In our lives. Secondly, bring Christ to our broken lives. Bring Christ to your broken life. Why? Look at verse 13 now, back in 1 Timothy 1. Look at verse 13. Because he is willing to forgive. Secondly. He is willing to forgive. Bring him your broken life because he is willing to forgive. Concentrate on verse 13 for a couple of minutes. Okay. Paul was once a triple threat Christ. A triple threat and you'll see it there. I heard on the news the other day about I I knew that carjacking was a crime. I've always known that. But I didn't know it had increased on the multi-level since uh, 2020. Evidently it's a major crime in the bigger cities like New Orleans and Philadelphia and New York and Chicago. Major crime. What, What happens is uh, the, the perpetrator will come up mainly to young ladies and older ladies in a parking lot and come out of nowhere, stick a gun in their face, okay, or something in their face, shove them aside, get their car, and go. Most of the, of the perpetrators are ages 11 to 17. The gang members are hiring, giving money to these 11 year olds, 17 year olds, for them to go and get these cars for the games. Okay. and you cannot put 11 year old 17 year old in jail okay They always get off so it's a it's, it's a crime that's just, just increasing it's increasing. They don't have enough police officers even to to follow this out and take care of it. Right. It's kind of a triple threat. They surprise them and then they do them harm and then they take away their their vehicle and whatever's inside of the vehicle. Paul here he was a triple threat. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor and he injured uh, people. Blaspheme means to speak viciously against Christ. That's what he did before he became a Christian. He spoke viciously against Christ. A persecutor is someone who scares someone and then pursues them, and when they capture them, they do them harm. That's a persecutor. Paul was a triple threat. It was, it was in Paul's mind to do his dead-level best to absolutely put a stop to the influence of Jesus Christ. Galatians 1.23 says that Paul had made havoc of the church. Galatians 1.23. We read in Acts 9.1 and 2 that he was breathing threatenings and slaughter against the early disciples of the Lord. And turn with me just to... Uh, emphasize this if you want to turn back to Acts uh, 26 and notice the the uh, crimes the sins of Paul before he became a Christian Uh, he explains it himself Paul does Acts 26 verses 9 uh, through 11 Acts 26 9 through 11 Paul says I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth and I did so in Jerusalem I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Verse 11. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. You see, Paul was a missionary against Christ before he ever became a missionary for Christ. Paul was a madman. He was like a wolf in the lambs. He wanted to put a stop to all that pertained to Jesus of Nazareth. But, notice verse 13. Notice verse 13. He said, but I received mercy. That whole phrase there is really one verb. One verb. In other words, Paul Paul said, I was mercied. I was mercyed. At what point in time was Paul mercied? Well, thankfully, we've got the record of that. Acts 22 and verse 16, and the gospel preacher, came to, to Saul at that time and says, And why do you tarry? He'd been praying about his situation for three days. Why do you tarry? Arise, get yourself baptized, wash away your sins, and call on the name of the Lord. It was at that point... In time that Paul was mercy, that he received mercy. You see, Paul is remembering here in his prayer that Jesus is willing to forgive. Notice as Paul begins verse 13 here, he says, Formerly, formerly, ESV, or before time, before time, I was a blasphemer and persecutor and I was an insolent person, but not anymore. The Lord has forgiven me. As Ephesians 4, 22 and 24, Ephesians 4, 22, 23, 24 brings out, Paul there says that we ought to put off the old man and put on the new man. That's what Paul had done. Or as Ephesians 5 verse 8 says, You were once darkness, now you're children of light. That's what Paul had experienced personally. Or another way of saying it is that that when paul became a christian he crucified the old man galatians 2 verse 20 he crucified the old man all right so paul remembers and we ought to remember this too as if if we're if we're vacillating back and forth if, if we're not sure about ourselves our relationship with jesus we we got to remember that jesus is willing to Forgive. You know sometimes the miracles of Jesus do form a picture, don't they? A spiritual picture. I, I think about when Jesus was walking on water, and Peter came out there to him also on the water, and Peter began to sink that that Jesus reached down. Peter said, "Lord, save me, save me and and Jesus reached down and brought Peter up. And that's a picture of of our situation in sin. The Lord reaches down uh, to us. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. Very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea. See, Jesus reaches down where we're at in our sin. He's willing to bring us out so paul remembers let us remember that jesus is willing to forgive that's verse 13 of first timothy one now let's go to verse 14 and let's remember this along with paul that jesus is full of grace in the third place this morning paul remembers let us remember jesus is full of grace we know this from john 1:14, where it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory even the glory of the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. Verse 14 brings this out here in 1 Timothy 1. Paul begins that statement by saying, In the grace of our Lord. Grace has ingredients within it. You cannot sum up grace by just one sentence. It's impossible to do. But grace involves all that God is about. You find some of these ingredients right here in 1 Timothy 1, don't you? For example, if you jump down to verse 16, you see the patience of the Lord, 1 Timothy 1. It talks about the patience of the Lord. But if you jump over to Ephesians 2 and verse 4, Paul talks about God being rich in mercy for the great love wherewith he has loved us. Notice those ingredients, mercy and love. If you jump over to Titus chapter 3 verses 4 and 5, Paul talks about the kindness of God and the love of God and again the mercy of God. All these ingredients make up the wonderful grace of our Lord. He does favor us, but he, first of all, he he has mercy toward us. In other words, he pities us, has compassion upon us. He loves us because he wants the best for us. He wants what's eternally best for us. And he's patient with us. He reaches down to us uh, in our sins. He is ultimately kind to us. Let's just sum it up this way. The Lord feels with us in our struggles with sin. He has ultimate compassion with us. And then also the Lord extends His blessings to us through Jesus. And the Lord was willing to pay the ultimate cost of dying on the cross for us in order for us to to be able to be forgiven of our sins. And that is grace, but that doesn't sum it up good because there's so many words that's involved in the idea of grace. But first, think about grace being composed of ingredients such as love and mercy and kindness and goodness and patience. I've seen this in church bulletins, different places you have too, where... The word grace is spelled out downwardly, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Okay. All that's involved in the idea of grace. But then also in verse 14 here, notice the abundance of grace. Paul says that the grace of his Lord was overflowing. It was exceedingly abundant uh, toward him. And it really was really was. Ephesians one verse seven, Paul says, or at least he refers to the riches of God's grace. The ideal here is that Paul could not think of Jesus without thinking about grace. Paul could not think of Jesus without thinking about love and mercy and patience and kindness and goodness and that just overflowed his mind. But then, to really get a hold of grace, we've got to think about our own sin. Our own sin. Have you ever thought about what sin does personally to the Lord? Do we stop and think about how that our own sin, whether it be transgressing the law or leaving all things that ought to be done, how it... Hurts the Lord. When Jesus appeared to Saul, as he was still much, very much a sinner on the road to Damascus, he, he come to Saul, he said, Saul, why do you persecute me? You see, what Saul was doing was hurting Jesus. It reminds us of Hebrews 6 and verse 6, how that when we turn our back on the Lord, that we crucify him afresh, And we put him to an open shame again. For us to really understand grace, we've got to stop and consider what our sin really does to the Lord. Even as Christians. Yes, the Bible teaches, especially in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is at the right hand of God. And he's pleading on our behalf. But do you ever stop and think about what he's thinking? I don't know what he's thinking. I'm not the Lord. But I know what I would think. Here David is again. He's sinning again. The, the very one that I cru, I was crucified for, uh, as as Jesus on the right hand of God, He leans over toward the Father and He pleads for our case. He says, maybe He says in His mind, "There David is again. He's sinning again. The very one that I was crucified for, the one I left heaven for, the one that I took those nails for, the one that I took the beatings for." There he is turning his back on me again. Paul felt this very deeply. Notice verse 15 of 1 Timothy 1. He said, this is a faithful saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul looked to himself as being the chief, the first, the foremost of all sinners. Line up. In other words, Paul's saying, line up all the sinners in a row. Line them all up. He says, I'm at the front of the line. And as Paul maintained that thought process, he was able to maintain a tremendous appreciation for the Lord's love and mercy in his heart and mind. And so Paul remembers that Jesus is full of grace. Bring Christ your broken life because he is full of grace. And finally this morning, bring Jesus your broken life because he's the God of truth. He's the God of truth. Two or three words here in our our paragraph, 1 Timothy 1. Notice Paul says, as he did all these, these things against Jesus, that he did them ignorantly in unbelief. But he responded with faith and love. He did it ignorantly in unbelief, but he responded to the grace of God in faith and love. Let's notice some facts about this. The first fact is this. Paul's problem was ignorance. He didn't know any better. As he took Christians to jail, he wasn't thinking in his mind, well, they're doing right and I'm doing wrong. No, he verily thought he ought to do all these things contrary to Jesus. He was ignorant. Okay, But his ignorance did not excuse. You see? We're responsible for what we do know. We're also responsible for what we do not know. His ignorance did not. If his ignorance would have excused him, he would not have needed forgiveness from Jesus, right? So Paul's problem was ignorance. But Paul's Paul's need was instruction and knowledge, and this he received. And on top of this, Paul's blessing was that he received this instruction and knowledge and it created faith in him because Romans 10, 17 says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Jesus. So these are the facts. Paul was ignorant. That was his problem. Paul's need was instruction and knowledge. He got that. And that developed into a great blessing for him which is faith. And faith includes obedience. And so at at that point, Paul was was mercy. He received mercy of the Lord. Some say that as you emphasize that, you are taking away from the grace of God. That somehow or another, you are counseling out or nullifying the grace of God. Of course, that's not true because we're just reading here from the New Testament bringing these things out. But it's not true because it doesn't meet common sense. Okay. We're not taking away from the grace of God. We're just looking at at God's access point. And His point of access is when we surrender our lives uh, to Him. We get access into His grace. Some of you might remember a few years ago that if you ever went to Six Flags with me, that when I got to Six Flags, I was possessed. Okay, And some of you know this, but... No, I was possessive. I love roller coasters about as much as anything physically in this world. Okay. When I got to Six Flags, okay. I didn't eat, drink, or do anything. I just got in line. Okay. And I would tell the people, whoever was the church group or whoever was with me, I'd say, okay, what time are we meeting back? They would say, okay, 6 p.m. I said, you'll find me in one of these lines. I'll either be at the Mindbender or I'll be at the Great America uh, Screen Machine or I'll be at Goliath, probably at Goliath. Okay. I was possessed. Okay. Now, to get to that joy, you had to have access. You had to purchase a ticket somehow, some way. Okay. Now, if I didn't purchase that ticket, that joy in there inside those gates, all those wonderful people screaming and going up and down those coasters, that would still be going on. The process of, uh, of requiring a ticket did not take away from what was there. The pro- myself purchasing a ticket to gain access did not take away from the joy that was inside that fence. Okay. It's just common sense. The Lord talks to us in common language. I didn't build that park. I didn't build those cultures. No one man could do that on his own. But I wanted to have a part in that. And so there was an access point. And so it is in the grace of God. Bring Christ your broken life. We've mentioned four reasons. Reason number one, because he wants to be involved in your life. Reason number two, he is willing to. To forgive. Reason number three, he is so full of grace. Reason number four, because he's the God of truth. Let us come to him. Let us stand and sing at this moment. Let's stand.